Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we began this chapter and I told you that this would be a two-part message because Paul here is dealing with the implications of the gospel in our life. First, he is dealing with the personal implications, which we talked about last week. But this week, he's dealing with the corporate implications. In other words, he, he is dealing with us as a whole, as a, as a whole body. And so, we're going to be looking this morning at verses 11 through 12. Um, as the, uh, before we jump into the text, though, I want to kind of take you back in history a little bit. And as the Second World War was nearing its end, the Nazi order was falling apart, and the Allied powers raced to, to carve up Europe and establish the conditions of peace. At, at war's end, Germany was divided into four military jurisdictions. The Russians controlled the East, while the U.S., Britain, France, the Allies... Western allies, controlled the West. And even the German capital of Berlin was divided the same way, Um, despite the fact that it lay deep within the Soviet jurisdiction of East Germany. Now, as you can imagine, tensions were running high from the beginning. Can can you imagine being in a city right now just outside of Moscow, being a Western democracy just kind of planted in the middle of Russia? That's what it was like for West Berlin. It was deep inside of the eastern Germany's uh, boundaries. And, and from the very beginning, they were trying to remove this group of people from East Germany. They didn't want this little pocket of the West, if you will, to, to be there in the middle of East Germany. They tried several different ways to push them out and to get rid of them. Uh, one of the ways that they did that was uh, by, by trying to blockade the city and, and starve them out. Um, the Allies, though, through what was now, was now known as the Berlin Airlift, the U.S. and its allies succeeded in holding out for almost a year, supplying the city with around-the-clock deliveries of food and other vital supplies. By the summer of 1948, though, it was clear that West Berlin would remain under Allied control. Still, West Berlin represented an ongoing problem for the Soviets in East Germany. The reason was was that people would cross over into West Berlin and then defect out of West Berlin over to West Germany. right? So they would move out and get out and immigrate to other parts of Europe. And this created a, a kind of a brain drain, if you will, where it was just sucking all of the people that had any kind of sense and any kind of understanding, they were, they were getting out of town. They were, they were getting gone. So it really started to affect the economy that was happening there in East Berlin and East Germany. And that year, the, the East German government finally had enough. And they decided to close what they called the West Berlin loophole and end the massive exodus from East Germany. And it started with just some checkpoints and some barbed wire with around the clock, around the whole of West Berlin. So 91 miles all the way around West Berlin, that city, it was choked off. Soon, though, they erected concrete barriers. That wasn't enough just to have the checkpoints. 
walling off West Berlin like a city under siege. And over time, the East German government kept developing taller and taller walls, eventually developing what was known as the Death Strip. And this was a strip of land in between the two fences where anyone in that strip would be shot on sight. It was massive, with concrete sections 12 foot high and 4 feet thick. Bobbed wire, observation towers, and regular canine patrols sought to ward off any who dared to attempt the forbidden city. It wasn't until 1989 that the standoff began to fall apart. Maybe some of you, like me, can remember where you were the day that the Berlin Wall came down. I still remember the speech that Reagan gave while he was in West Berlin to General Gorbachev. If you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and, the Eastern, and Eastern Europe, come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Open this gate. Tear down this wall. Two years later, the wall did come down. And more than two million East Berliners were climbing over the other side Loved ones who were separated for 40 years were finally able to embrace again. Kissing one another, crying with one another. It was one of the most beautiful scenes in the 20th century. Ordinary people then began to physically dismantle the wall with hammers and chisels and whatever else they had to take it out. It was an amazing thing to watch. I remember being a kid and watching that and just seeing this fractured German nation, these, these two distinct people become one people again. And in that moment, the literal dividing wall between these two countries fell. The German Democratic Republic and the Federal Republic of Germany went from two distinct countries into one new country. This new country was neither one of the old. It was something completely new. And metaphorically, the Iron Curtain was torn apart. This historical event symbolizes in a small way what Paul is describing here in our passage this morning. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. I want to break this up into three sections. The first is the Gentiles before Jesus. The second is the dividing wall being torn down in verses 13 through 18. And then finally, the Gentiles after Jesus, verses 19 through 22. So we're going to see the Gentiles before Jesus the dividing wall being torn down, and the Gentiles after Jesus, if you're taking notes. So starting in verses 11 through 12, Paul says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
Paul uses this word here, uncircumcised, in verse 11. This word was used by the Jews to describe Gentiles, and and it was really a a word of ridicule and scorn. It it was kind of a way of making fun of them, if you will. These were the people of the uncircumcision. And the words that Paul uses here, translated by human hands, and it's opposite are used in the New Testament to contrast what is made by hands versus what is made by God. Paul's point is that the circumcision performed in the flesh with human hands is no longer the real or spiritually meaningful circumcision here. Then in verse 12, we see that they are not only the uncircumcised, but they are illegal aliens. First, we see they are separate from Christ. He lists out several reasons why they are illegal aliens in verse 12. First, they are separate from Christ. The word translated separate is used in only two other places and means alienation or estrangement from God. You see those in Ephesians 4, 18 and Colossians 2, 1 through 21. So to be Separate means to be an alien, to be alienated from God. But now we are in Christ, right? He spent the whole last chapter talking about all the benefits of being in Christ. But he's contrasting that here with before that, before that moment of salvation, you are alienated from God. You are apart. You are separate from Christ. Second, they were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And the word translated here for commonwealth has the idea not only of a state or government, but even more so of the rights extending to its citizens. In other words, this this was Paul describing the privileges, the blessings, the resources that came from from being a part of the commonwealth of Israel that, that Gentiles had no right to that. They had no access to that. They were completely separated and alienated from that. Because during that age, God had restricted his elective purposes to Israel. But now, now, praise God, with the coming of Christ, they are fellow citizens. They are fellow heirs with the nation of Israel. Third, they're strangers to the covenants of promise. Notice there the plural is not the covenant of promise, but the covenants of promise. And this is pointing to the entire series of covenants that was made in the Old Testament. With Abraham back in Genesis 15 and 17. With Isaac in Genesis 26. With Jacob in Genesis 28. And David in 2 Samuel 7. These covenants were all God's pledge to be faithful to His people and to fulfill His word to them. And now... Paul is saying, you, you as Gentiles, you, you are strangers to all of those things. You, you cannot have access to those things. These covenants were all God's pledge to be faithful to his people, to fulfill his word in them. This was God saying, I am going to make a covenant with you, and I am going to keep that covenant with you. Because I know you can't keep it. But I, your faithful God, will keep that covenant with you. Though Gentiles had no part in the promise, now 
They are now co-heirs with Christ. Because Christ kept the covenant that we could never keep. And now Gentiles had an opportunity to be heirs to those covenants, to be heirs to those promises that God made to his people. Next, Paul says they have no hope. There's no hope that that when you are apart from God, you are hopeless. There is no reason to hope in this life. What do you have to hope for? A bigger house? It's not going to be yours forever. A better car? It's going to break down eventually. A new phone? They'll just come out with a new one right after you buy yours. Right? There's nothing in this world that can give you everlasting hope. And, And apart from God, separated from God, alienated from God, there is no hope in this life. And finally, he says, without God in the world. One commentator summed up this verse by saying that they were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. That that is our state before Christ. But then we see a turn in verse 13 through 18. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, he says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. I want to look at four things that happened when this dividing wall came down in this section of Scripture. First, I want you to notice what Christ has done. We're going to see that in verses 13 and 14. Then you're going to, I want you to notice how it was accomplished in verse 15. And then notice why he did it in verses 15 and 16. And then finally, I want you to see the message that he proclaimed as he was doing it in verse 17 through 18. So what Christ has done, how he has accomplished it, why he did it, and finally, the message that he proclaimed. First there, notice what he's done. He says, he has brought us near by his blood. That but now contrasts with at that time of verse 12. In in Christ contrasts with apart from Christ in verse 12. Near, the, the spatial distance of the Gentiles was a symbolic of their spiritual and moral separation as well. That there were parts of the temples in which the Gentiles could never go. They were physically separated spatially from the people of God, and the presence of God. But Paul is now saying that through Christ's blood, they are are being brought near. All of those old boundaries are gone. Second, he's made both Jew and Gentile into one. 
This is still under what Christ has done. He's made both Jew and Gentile into one in verse 14. Paul's emphasis on peace here is unmistakable. He uses it four times in this section of Scripture. 14, in verse 14, verse 15, 17, twice. That peace should now exist between the two is remarkable, given the fact that, as one commentary put it, the Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentile said the Jews were created by God. The Gentiles said the Jews were created to be by God to be the fuel for the fires of hell. They said loves that God only loves Israel. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. That's how absolute this difference was. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. And yet, Jesus, through his blood, has now brought them together. There is now no, no more Jew, no more Gentile. They are something new. Observe that Jesus didn't merely create peace. He is peace. Third, he's, he's broken down the barrier wall, the, the enmity there in verse 14, the second half of 14. And some, there's, there's a couple of interpretations of, of what this means. Some argue that it refers literally to the temple barrier which separated the court of the Gentiles from the inner courts of the sanctuary. The second view is that it's the, the barrier Paul mentions in the Mosaic law itself which functioned to protect Israel from Gentile impurity. The first phrase of verse 15 would then parallel verse 14 in this idea. Therefore, having broken down the dividing wall or the fence in verse 14, having abolished the enmity, the law of the commandments in verse 15. And according to this view, the, the Mosaic law was a sign of Jewish particularism and created a, a fence or a wall around Israel, thereby separating Jews from Gentiles, both religiously and socially. And this is what contributed to that deep sense of hostility between these two groups. Third, Best argues that it may just simply be that we have an ordinary metaphor of, of a separating wall and we're wrong to look for obscure meanings hidden in it. In other words, it's, it's not unnatural for people if they disagree with one another or when they can't see eye to eye, they, 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 they speak that there is this separating factor, like I, I can't get through to this person, like there's, there's a wall between us, right? And, and, and that perhaps is what Paul is referring to here. But either way, what, whatever it was that was separating Jews and Gentiles has now been torn down. Second, notice how he accomplished it. So first, 
part there was, was what Christ has done. He, he brought us near by his blood. He has made both Jew and Gentile into one, and he's broken down the barrier wall. But second, notice how he has accomplished it. By means of his flesh. This, this, this victory that was won was won by Christ going to the cross and dying for these people. He was offering himself up on the cross to be the sacrifice that, that we could never offer, that we could never be, to live the life that we could never live. And second there, he abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. Now the content of the law, the commandments, and the form of the commandments are the ordinances. Thus the Mosaic covenant and its law no longer carry the immediate authority for the believer. Now, again, that's not to say that there's nothing in the law that's relevant today. You can look at Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, and Romans 13, 8 through 10, and see that there are. But it is to say that the, the Old Testament law must be interpreted and implied Christologically. In other words, it's a fancy word for saying through Christ. You have, to, you have to look at the Old Testament law through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ Jesus. In view of what Christ has done, fulfilling the law and inaugurating a new covenant. Calvin on this verse said, it's evident too that Paul is here treating exclusively of the ceremonial law. For the moral law is not a wall of partition separating us from the Jews. In other words, thou shalt not murder is not something that's going to separate us. That, that's good for both sides of the wall, right? Can we agree on that? Right? But, but some of these other ceremonial things were, that were designed to create holy and unholy, sacred and secular, so to speak, that those are the things in which Paul has removed. There is no longer this division between the two. Third, notice why he did it. We looked at what he's done. We've looked at how he accomplished it. And third, I want you to see why he did it in verses 15 through 16. In verse 15, it says, in order to create one new man. And by new man, he means the Christian community in its corporate identity, the church. This is something totally new that he is creating. Eastern Germany didn't just get absorbed by Western Germany. Something totally new was created. And the same thing has happened here. There is no longer Jew and there is no longer Gentile. There is no longer Israel. It's not, it's not like there's Israel and there's the church. What Jesus has done is created something completely new. This is a completely new category in Paul's mind for those who are in Christ. One commentator said it like this, they have not just been brought into a mutual relationship, but have been made one in a unity where both are no longer what they previously were. Therefore, it is not as though Gentiles are transformed into Jews, 
nor are Jews transformed into Gentiles. Rather, the resulting new humanity transcends the two old entities, even though unbelieving Israel and disobedient Gentiles continue to exist. So what Paul is saying here, guys, is this, that there are but three groups of people in the world. There are unbelieving Jews, unbelieving Gentiles, and the church. That, that is the three groups of people that remain post-Jesus. Why did he do that? Well, in order that he might reconcile both in one body to God, it says in verse 16. Again, that one body is a reference to the church, and it denotes the same reality as the one new man in verse 15. And it was by the cross that this was achieved. Christ in his death was slain, but the slain was the slayer too. That the enmity which Christ has killed is both vertical. In other words, it's, it's, he, he has killed the enmity between God and humanity. But it is also horizontal. It has now killed the enmity that is between the Jew and the Gentile. Notice also that this reconciliation of the Jew to God and the Gentile to God is not in isolation from one another, but in one body. In their new view, their new identity as a church, the, the new third race, if you will, was created. Finally, in this section of looking at what tearing down the wall did, I want you to notice the message that he proclaimed. Verses 17 through 18. The focus of this message was peace. Those far away, in other words, the Gentiles, those near, the Jews, that the Old Testament that, uh, text that Paul quotes here is Isaiah 57, 19, which is, in its original context, spoke of God's blessing on Jews in the land to those who are near and Jews of the dispersion who are far away. Paul appears to believe the ultimate fulfillment is found in peace being proclaimed to Gentiles. Let me read that to you. And it shall be said, this is Isaiah 57, if you want to flip over there, starting in verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the holy or the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit will grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry, I struck him, I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. 
This is the final or point here I want to make is the message of breaking down this wall and this barrier is to bring peace to this world. And as I said earlier, Jesus doesn't just bring peace. He is peace. Notice the message results. In verse 18, this message of peace, Paul's image here most likely derives from the Old Testament sacrificial system in, in which offerings were brought into the presence of God to make peace between God and man. But notice the emphasis, we both have our access. O'Brien points out that it's not simply that individual Gentiles and Jews have unhindered entry into the presence of God, wonderful as that is. In addition, both of them, as one new humanity, can come into his presence together. Jew and Gentile stand together as one people in God's presence with old distinctions no longer having any significance. I also want to point out one thing about this, this access that this peace gives us. First, that it is in the Spirit. It's in the Spirit. One commentator said this about this section, For Paul, it is the common experience of the one Spirit, by Jew and Gentile alike, that attests that God has created something new in the body of Christ. Thus the one Spirit who has formed them into one body also brings them together as that one body into the presence of the Father. It is as they live together in the common sphere of the Spirit that they have entry with God. So one, we see that that, that access is given to us in the Spirit. So having the Holy Spirit inside of us as believers gives us access to God. But notice also that this access is, is personal. This is sometimes, I, th I think, something we forget as we are rightly focused on the fact that God is holy, and, and He absolutely is. But because of the peace that Jesus has brought, we have familial access to God. Right? We, we are His family. We are getting access to the Father, not just access to God. Right? That, that changes the way we view that access. There, there's, a, there's a personalness there that, that, that invites us into a relationship with Him. It's, it's not one in which we stand back and we go, oh, you're, you're so holy. And get, He is, but because of the peace, because of what Jesus has done, we can now enter with our unholy selves into the very presence of God and have a relationship with Him. We, we don't have to just sit back and study him from afar and read books about him. We can spend time with him. We can get to know him. Guys, that, that's, that's an amazing gift that Jesus has given us by tearing down this wall of enmity that existed. Finally, the last section, verses 19 through 22. I want you to see what Paul says it looks like for Gentiles after Jesus. 
right? He's, he's listed all these things, all these things that separated us, that kept us apart, that kept us aliens, right? J- just like we were living in West Berlin with a, a, a 91-mile wall around us and we couldn't get out, we couldn't, you know, nobody could come or go. Paul says that, that's what it's like. But now, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Notice what Paul says here. Right off the bat in verses 19, you are now fellow citizens. Right Before you were separate, before you were strangers, before you were aliens, but, but now... Because you are in Christ, believing Gentiles are now neither homeless nor second-class citizens in someone else's kingdom. They they now are fellow citizens with the saints. This is amazing. If you were a Gentile, this would be blowing your mind right now. Because of the way in which they had been treated for so long by the Jewish nation. To hear Paul proclaim this, that there is now one nation, one country, and we get to be fellows. We're not second class, like, oh, we just slid in, right? I hear so many people talk about their salvation that way. They're like, yeah, I know God loves everybody, but, but like, I feel like I'm that, that one that just slid in right at the last, you know, just he had to take me kind of thing. That's not what Paul is saying. No, Paul is saying we are fellow citizens, no longer strangers and aliens, Instead, we are members of the household of God. Notice the, the imagery, how it, how it shifts from the, the political realm of citizenship and its rights and, and privileges and all the things that go with it, and it just shifts right into the intimacy of a family and a home. So you, you're being brought not only into the nation of God, but to the household of God. You're being invited to be a part of the family. We're not just fellow citizens, but we are now God's children together, brothers and sisters in his family. Listen to how one commentator put it. As the text stands, the Gentiles' former disadvantages have been reversed, not by their being incorporated into Israel, even into a renewed Israel of Jewish Christians, but by their being made members of a new community which transcends the categories of Jew and Gentile, an entity which is a new creation, not simply a merging of the former groupings. Gentiles no longer lack a commonwealth. Yet this is not because they are now part of the commonwealth of Israel, but because they are fellow citizens with all the saints in the church. Thus, there is no escaping the conclusion that Ephesians 2 depicts the church in terms of a third, a new third entity 
one which transcends the old ethnic and religious entities of Jew and Gentile. Jesus has done something completely new in the church. He goes on to say that we're also now the temple of the Lord. This isn't the first time or the only time that Paul mentions this concept. If you're taking notes, 1 Corinthians 3, 9 through 17, Paul spoke of building on a foundation and of the temple indwelt by the Holy Spirit. In that passage, Paul himself and other apostolic leaders are portrayed as laying the foundation, which is Christ himself on whom which they continue to build. And in this passage, he says that Jesus is the cornerstone and that, that all of us are building this, this foundation that is growing. This idea of foundation and cornerstone here, the, the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church and that their inspired and revelatory teachings concerning the person and work of Christ provided the, the theological foundation on which all subsequent churches and ministries grow. They are the primary and authority, authoritative recipients and proclaimers of God's revelation. It's interesting here, the word cornerstone is a somewhat ambiguous word. And in our modern day English, we, we struggle sometimes to really be able to nail that down. But in view here, I think, is the usage of the word in Isaiah 28, 16. It's the only text in the LX where, where this is found. And Paul most likely means that Christ is, a, is the vital cornerstone on whom the building is constructed. The, the foundation or the position of all other stones starts and is determined by him. So the temple is being built and up from revelation given in Christ with the apostles and prophets elaborating and explaining the mystery which has been made known to them by the Holy Spirit. But all is built on Christ, supported by Christ. He is the cornerstone. It talks about its formation here. Notice it's the in whom in both verses 21 and 22. That phrase in whom is being used. And the point that this building, this, this temple, functions only in relation to Jesus Christ. It, it will not work apart from him. Right? You, you cannot take all of the methods and all of the means of what we call church, go rent a building and do it apart from Jesus Christ. It will not work. He has to be the foundational piece for it to succeed. And then finally, its function in verse 22. The word translated dwelling is used in the Old Testament of God's dwelling in the temple of Jerusalem and of his heavenly dwelling place. One person wrote, now, now his dwelling place can be said to be neither a literal temple in Jerusalem nor simply heaven, but now the church this new third entity that he has created by Jesus, through Jesus, and upon Jesus.
one last little comment in light of what Paul has said in this paragraph concerning the relationship of Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ the church. All distinctions, all spiritual privileges, all grounds for separation and alienation based on one's ancestry have been abolished by the blood of the cross. One's genetic history no longer has bearing or weight or significance in the sight of a holy God. Your ethnic identity no longer has relevance when it comes to the experience of this spiritual privilege that Jesus has accomplished for us. The focus of God's presence, the, the, the place of his power, is no more and never again tied solely to one ethnicity. But rather a spiritually united church who share a common faith. Because we live in a time that is ravished and, and just constantly being talked about in terms of race, in terms of power. I want you to understand that our only hope is found right here in Ephesians chapter 2 to be able to overcome any of those barriers. Any, any secular solutions that is not built upon the cornerstone of Jesus will fail. The only way to overcome racism in our country, in our world, the only way to overcome tribalism in our country, in our world, the only way to overcome political divisions in our country, in our world, is through Jesus Christ. And through his church, this completely new entity where there is no longer Jew nor Greek, male nor female. All of those distinctions go away in light of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. That, that is our only hope for resolution. And I encourage you, if you want to see change, and I hope you do, I, I hope you want to see change in the world around us, in the areas of, of race and power structures and all those other things. But let me just give you and leave you with one piece of really strong advice this morning. The only solution is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to make a difference? You want to make a change? Share the gospel. Teach the world about this new third entity that Jesus has made by sacrificing and laying down his life and tearing down the wall that separated us all from God. But not only the wall that separated us from God, but the wall that separated us from each other. It is only in and through the gospel that real meaningful change can ever be accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for tearing down this wall of enmity. Most of the people in this room are, are Gentile by background, Lord. So we, we 
praise you for inviting us in and, and allowing us to be a part of your family. Not, not just to come into one section of your temple, but to have personal direct access with you as our Father. Lord, we, we are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Instead, we are fellow citizens, fellow heirs to the promises of Christ. And Lord, I, I pray that you would convict our hearts. Show us the places where we are still erecting barriers between other peoples, other races. So that we might confess that and your Holy Spirit can tear that down. Just as you tore down this wall, dividing Jew and Gentile. And that, Lord, we would be faithful in taking the good news of the gospel to everyone around us. Not, not just to the people that look like us and act like us and dress like us and hang out with people like us, but, but to everyone, always, God. Because that's a picture of the implications of salvation to the church. And Lord, I pray that you would just put in our heart a burning desire for that picture we see at the end of the Bible in Revelation of, of every tribe and every nation and every tongue coming to worship you. And God, that that would be our, our desire. As church, but also as the individual members, the living stones that make up the church. And some of you are here this morning, and God, I just pray for them that, that are on the other side of that wall still. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that they would find themselves in this new entity church they would stop trying to do it on their own trying to be good enough but God instead confess and repent of their need for a savior confess and repent of their sin and put their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done Lord that they would lay down their hammer and chisel where they were trying to tear down the wall and instead, just accept what Jesus has already done to destroy the wall that was separating them from you. Father, I ask these things in Jesus' precious name.